Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. How are you doing, Kartik? I'm stressed, uh, as my grandmother said to me just about half an hour ago, I have my head so far up my ass that my neck is now brown. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It was, it was. I was like, Grandma, <laughs> like, really? Wow. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very stressed, as James knows. Uh, I'm working on my research proposal for my master's dissertation, uh, whilst also trying to juggle other essays, my dissertation. So there's a lot going on, but thankfully we have the podcast to come back to and talk about our favourite topics. Absolutely. And we've got a very interesting episode uh, today as we have some catching up to do um, based on the fact that we took last week to talk about something completely uh, separate. But before we get into that, let's just uh, do a quick little announcement. And that is this is going to be the last episode of the series. Yes, me and Kartik have been talking and we have decided that uh, we need a bit of a hiatus to focus on some things with uni, um, Christmas, um, but also some time away to kind of sort of plan and re- sort of focus for the next series of the podcast, which we are hoping will come out early January. So you've only got a little bit of time away from us to wait until the next uh, episode. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're not breaking up, by the way. It's, no. it's not. It's not. We were on a break. Um, it's <laughs> not a breakup either. It's literally just so we can focus on our essays, also so that we can plan out the next fifteen episodes and bring you an amazing podcast. And in the words of Boris Johnson, an oven ready podcast. Yes, <laughs> oven ready. And I'll come back and be more right wing and more, <laughs> more uh, sort of problematic in the podcast so next season can just be me and Kartik arguing for 15 episodes um because i'm sure that's what the people uh the people want um so yeah that's kind of our plan so this will be your last time you'll hear from us for um, a month just a month it's really not that big of a deal yeah it's not it's, <laughs> it's, it's not that long but we know that we there will be an emptiness in some of your lives um wow <laughs> um, that's a, that's a that's a big statement yeah so don't go listening to any other podcasts uh because and we um, we'll know what happened and uh we, that's cheating yeah it's cheating it's 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 cheating it's um that is some ross level shit from friends basically um so yeah but anyway enough of the histrionics is that if that's the right word should we talk about last week's podcast can i say what i'm drinking because i know you're being boring and drinking water but actually oh, yeah, i sorry. i went and did some i went on a little mini excursion to the shops today because I was bored and I got um, Peroni's Gran Reserva. It's, um, it's. So you got Tory Peroni. Yeah, it is Tory Peroni. It's their premium lager. Um, still made by the Asahi company when they bought Peroni out however long ago that was. Uh, but it's a little bit more hoppy and uh, I bloody love it. It's one of my favourite beers. So... 
good. Yeah. I'm drinking water because uh, I'm not a teetotaler now, by the way. Um, mm. I'm just drinking water because I want to drink water and beer gives me a headache uh, and I have work to do after. So mm. last week's podcast, James, what did you think? I think it's a bit of shit to be honest. No, I'm joking. It was <laughs> no, no, it's amazing. No, no, it's really good. Um, yeah, you know, we chatted with Tim afterwards, and after we stopped recording, and we all just sort of said how much of a, a good time we had. And uh, yeah, no, it's really, really interesting. And he, I sort of when I was editing it and also listening to it back again, I sort of also found myself like learning things then because like obviously when we're talking like amongst mm. each other and, and to guests and stuff sometimes it's difficult because obviously I'm trying to sort of formulate what my next, next sort question of, is next question yeah. or train of thought is so I can't necessarily sort of absorb everything that somebody's saying so it's quite good then listening to that back or through editing and and re-listening again and again and again so yeah, and it's yeah. going to help with my dissertation as well. So thank you very much, Tim. Um... <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a really really fun episode. Um, we covered a lot of ground about the Conservative Party. Um, there were elements that I thought, hmm, maybe that could be challenged, but I didn't want to interrupt Professor Tim Bale. Maybe next time when we come back for season two, uh, I will do a lot more interrupting. But yes, we also wanted to cover so much more. I wanted to get his views on Just Stop Oil and he had some really, really interesting insights, um, mm. which we will cover in the next season. But mm. for this week, we're covering big, big, big topics. James, yes. why don't you introduce the first topic to us? Yes. Um, so let's talk Let's talk about the, the big elephant in the world at the moment, which is the Qatar World Cup, something that shouldn't necessarily be politicized but unfortunately uh this is the situation that we're in everybody knows that the world cup is currently in qatar and i'm going to kind of just talk about the sort of the last the lead up to this because although this sort of conversation has only turned up recently in my opinion this is a conversation that should have been happening for the last 12 years as to why qatar's World Cup is contentious. But let's take you back. 12 years ago, in about 2010, Qatar won the 2022 FIFA World Cup. The way it works is nation... Like, the way that you win the World Cup is nations express interest by bidding and the bids work as a proposal for the World Cup, supported by government letters, sponsors, endorsements, plans for the culture, plans for spending. That's given to 24 FIFA executives who then vote. There was four rounds of bidding and it was completed, resulting in Qatar winning the 2022 right. Now, Qatar is the first Arab country to host the World Cup. It's also the smallest country to ever host the World Cup. Um, and it's definitely very, very contentious. The bidding process itself came with a lot of criticism. Evidence was found that various bribery tactics were involved, involved in the voting process. Qatar also hired an ex-CIA agent to spy on the opponent camps to see what tactics different nations were pulling in order to make their bids more attractive. Allegedly. 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 There is a name. There is a name that came with that ex-CIA uh, claims that sense why I thought there might be a bit more uh, sort of objectiveness in it, but um, but anyway, uh, Qatar even being considered was contentious, giving the issue of uh, their uh, sort of 
response to migrant workers and how they treat migrant workers and human rights, especially relating to the LGBT plus community. As we know, Qatar is a Muslim country and has taken uh, their faith into the law and being gay can get you a prison sentence of seven plus years. Um, Sepp Blatter, the ex-president, who resigned over corruption allegations, has come out in a recent statement saying that in hindsight, the decision to allow Qatar to bid was a mistake. Um, But going more sort of recently, the the sort of the controversy has increased. Uh, There was a famous Guardian article that claimed that 6,500 workers have died since Qatar uh, was awarded the World Cup. Now, the article did make concessions that you can't potentially align all 6,500 deaths uh, to the construction of the World Cup infrastructure. The head of Fair Square Project, Nick uh, McGeehan, I want to say, uh, believed that a lot of deaths could be attributed. Now, this was responded by the head of the um, sort of Qatar uh, like project by saying that only three people have died. Um other contentious things have been that gay people have been told to respect the culture of Qatar by reining in their expressions of holding hands and public displays of affection. Uh, our foreign secretary, James Cleverly, your favourite person, Kartik, urged LGBT plus fans to compromise when visiting Qatar, uh, showing his compassion and empathy to uh, to the LGBT community. I obviously um sarcastic there uh teams have also been banned from wearing the lgbt plus campaign one love armbands and are potentially exploring legal action um yeah i mean there's there's now this really turbulent relationship between sport culture and and politics which a lot of people say there shouldn't be what what kind of your thoughts more holistically regarding the qatar world cup Yes, before I get onto that, I want to address a couple of things. So yes. you said in one of your points that it was contentious for Qatar to be considered for the World Cup. Mm. Yes, the migrant workers' issues and the LGBTQ issues were definitely a part of that. But another big element of that was Qatar historically has not really shown a national interest in football. Yeah. That's, mm. And they didn't really have any infrastructure. Now, Qatar is very, very wealthy. They have a lot of oil reserves. They have a lot of gas. They they were a, they were a British protector. Sorry, I'm not going to go into the history of it too much, but they were a British protector, protectorate in 1971. Mm. Uh, and when the British left, uh, Qatar found that they were sitting on a massive gas field. And that's what made them so wealthy now. Um, so that's one big thing. But they haven't shown a interest in football, but also there wasn't really any infrastructure pre-2022 World Cup that was being developed, but there wasn't any infrastructure pre-2022 World Cup of football. It was a very, very hot country, and football isn't traditionally played in very hot countries. Mm. So the actual pitches are cooled extensively. Um, another thing... Yes, the big thing for me is James Cleverly is far from my favourite person. But the turbulent relationship between sport, culture and politics. Now, there are a lot of takeaways from this. The corruption of FIFA being one. Mm. Um, it's massive. Uh, clearly, football has has 
been massive for the last couple of uh, years uh, throughout the 21st century. But the amount of money being invested into this by countries, by companies, when you've got 13% of the world's population coming to coming to watch one event, of course you want to you want to do it. Now, countries don't actually make any money from a World Cup. They put in a lot more money than they make. But for a second of the time, for at least your 15 minutes of fame, if you like, the whole world is focusing on your country. And that gives you a lot of soft power, basically. So the political ideas of it. Now, I'm not, this is where I throw my political career straight in the bin by saying I'm not a big football guy. Um, oh. but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I am a big geopolitics guy i'm a big political thought kind of guy so this is what i think so the communication and the cross-border translation of political ideas and political thought is for me the biggest part of this saga things that are fundamentally wrong globally are being attributed to qatar does that take away from the awful nature of forced migrant workers absolutely not the hypocrisy angle however must be acknowledged but then that takes it back to the corruption of FIFA. FIFA as an organisation has allowed this behaviour to slide because they they get money from it, effectively. Yes, sport and international sport and international sport, particularly in my opinion, should not just be about sport. It's one of the few moments when the world gets an opportunity to come back and reflect upon itself as a collective planet, not just in terms of individual nation states. So should ideas be challenged in the context of international sport? Absolutely, they should. They, but it should be a global reflection on the state of the world, not just the entire impetus of moral change placed upon one country. But of course, that's not how the world works. Uh, and this is a very idealized reflection of how the world should work and how moral change should work. Um, the moral change that the world needs really, really badly, is definitely reflected in the way Qatar um, got access to the World Cup, uh, LGBTQ rights in Qatar. And that's the big problem. But the transfer, of, uh, the transfer of ideas is now being limited to just one country when the whole world, in my opinion, needs to reflect. I think that... So you, you talked about the, the kind of... The geopolitical dimensions and the sense of hypocrisy that effectively these sort of the things relating to sort of human rights issues should be a global reflection and not just sort of pointed at one country. And I, you know, I can I completely un understand that argument, but I, I just I'm not totally convinced in relative terms because. You know, there could have been a host of other countries. I, I I looked at the potential bidders. I think New Zealand bidded, Australia bidded. I think the US bidded, but then they ended up getting twenty twenty six, which is the next uh, the next World Cup. Um, but I'm just not convinced because you've got these countries which um, embedded and ensued within their law are these basic human rights, or you know, the ability for um, people to marry and freely love one another without any fear of persecution and i'm sorry but like people can bring in the whole religious or different culture aspect to it but in my opinion it, it's just it's 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 total backwardsness and if that 
you know, if, if some people can, some people will come to me and say, well, hold on a second, that, that goes against my, my religion. And, uh, you know, I totally understand that, but I don't think that religion should be something that puts, you know, people's ability to express love and compassion and just basic human emotions. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that should stand in the way of them doing that. So. I see what you're saying. And the thing is, I don't think we could fl- frame religion and the culture of a country as backwardness. I think that's where the problem comes in. See, in the UK, LGBTQ rights, for example, were only decriminalised in 2014. In Northern Ireland, only in 2020. In New Zealand, I'll admit, New Zealand is a very, very progressive country, and I think they've decriminalised LGBTQ, uh, same-sex marriage. Um, by the way, I was referring to same-sex marriage with those previous mm, two yeah, things yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. In, in 1985. Now, this is relatively recent. Mm. We can't, you know, the, the world is going through a global shift, and we can't expect one of the smallest countries in the world who has who only received true national freedom in 1971 to have the same legal status on LGBTQ rights as the UK or New Zealand, especially the UK. We're, we only decriminalised same-sex marriage in 2014 mm-hmm. and in Northern Ireland in 2020. Realistically, what right do we have to tell another country about LGBTQ rights? New Zealand, maybe. England, not really. Migrant workers, yes, but we have massive problems with our workforce in the UK. I don't know if you recently saw what happened uh, in a uh, in a select committee me- uh, meeting, but the MP for, La- uh, for the Labour Party, Darren Jones, was critiquing Amazon's head of Europe for the way uh, Amazon workers are treated throughout Europe and in the UK. We've, yeah, we've but, got but monitors. Are we, but, but are we having... Are we having um... Are we having companies like taking away people's passports, people's right to, to free movement? And Abs- Yeah, absolutely. That is abhorrent and it should be addressed. And that's where we go back to FIFA in, in 2010 and say, why the hell did you do this? Mm. You know, or at least if you, if you were going to do this, you should have addressed these fundamental issues of human rights. And that's where that's where it absolutely loses me. So I also I also think I completely agree with you. These conversations should have been happening 12 years ago. I don't know why they're happening just now as we're having the World Cup. Yeah. And I think almost that, that it does kind of fall into the question that I kind of often think about is to do with what Qatar could have done differently with this World Cup, because, you know, there were some points where they were saying, you know, like uh, people of non-heterosexuality will be made to feel welcome and stuff like that. And you have to say, OK, you know, that's fair enough. They're sort of, you know, being flexible with their. Um, but then you have I think it was one of the like, uh, I think one of the ministers or something like that saying that people who are homosexual have a brain disease or something like that. And you just have yeah. to kind of think to yourself how like what because like you said there isn't any money to make out of this qatar has spent 22 billion mm. on this the which the is second, a lot more than previous countries yeah uh, i think russia was 11 billion south africa was 5 billion it's a lot more than any other and what are they going to do after the world cup with all those stadiums that they built 
what are they going to do? Nothing. They well, just... uh, I mean, we, we had this issue with, I think there, there was a World Cup, a, a Cricket World Cup held in uh, UAE. And since then, there have been a lot of cricket matches held, international cricket matches held in UAE. So I imagine a lot of international football matches will be held in Qatar. I'm not sure, but... given the backlash, I'm not sure whether whether, you know, national football associations would be willing to agree to go to these. But these, but these were national football associations. I mean, you know, the 24 FIFA executives aren't just 24 Swiss men. And I think Zurich is in Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, they aren't just 24 Swiss or European men sitting in a room. These are members of the AFC, UEFA, I've forgotten the other names, but I know the AFC mm. and uh, UEFA because I'm Asian and yeah. <laughs> and I live in Europe. But the, the, these are international people. So, yeah, I think it will. Um, it, but yes, it should be addressed in Qatar. Absolutely. Should it be addressed in everywhere else in the world? Absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. And, that, and that's my perspective. I don't think we should just limit it to Qatar. We should be saying, oh, do you know what? We aren't doing enough for trans rights in the UK. We should do mm. more of that. Yes, there is a degree of absolutely disgusting homophobia in Qatar, which should be addressed. And but you also have to add the angle, and this is something that's that's just come up in my head, is that if I went to Qatar with my girlfriend, I wouldn't hold her hand in public because that is also disrespecting the culture of the country. I but I also don't like how it's particularly targeted towards homosexual couples. That's where the homophobia comes in. Mm, yeah, and I think that there, there was a particular time. So basically, this there's been this Danish reporter who's become massively big because he's basically he kind of pushed those rules. So he was wearing one of the One Love armbands and stuff like that. And uh, there's a situation where the police came over and took away his armband and stuff. And there was a part of me which was thinking to myself, well, hold on, Qatar is asking everybody to be flexible with their, you know, with their own culture to come here. And I completely understand that. But where is their flexibility? And I know there's an argument to say, well, why do they have to be mm. flexibility? It's their own country. They came to FIFA with this bid, you know, they FIFA, which is obviously largely dominated by Western, uh, Western culture, you know, UEFA, one of the big powerhouses, it's literally Europe. It's it's just, it's got Western culture written all over it. Liberal democracy written all over it. Mm. In my mind, and this might just be someone, my mind that is thinking just uber liberal demo democraticness. I just mm. can't fathom the fact that Qatar genuinely thought they could just come to FIFA, bid, get accepted for you due to of course they did no of course they did i'm sorry but we had a we had a world cup in was it world cup or euros in russia world cup world in 2018 cup. we had a world cup in russia in 2018 four years after crimea had happened yeah exactly but then but but that it's that, it's that, these international organizations money talks bullshit walks it's as simple as that they don't care about lgbtq rights mm. they don't care about migrant workers rights the real people who should care about migrant workers' rights and LGBTQ rights is FIFA, and they're yeah. not and they're not doing anything about it. They're an international organization. International organizations, and this is attributed to all international organizations. They should do something about this, but they're not because at the end of the day, mm. the only thing they care about is their own pocket. 
Yeah, and you get these footballers like I saw last night, Eden Hazard or I think Granite Xhaka of Arsenal, and I have to be careful with because I'm an Arsenal supporter myself. But I, I will criticise what Granite Xhaka said last night, which is why we're we getting involved with politics when you know we're just here to play football. And my response oh, is well, my response is well, I'm sorry, but it is politics, and you know it is. You can't sort of shy away from the fact that if you go to a country which has got abhorrent uh, human right records and uh, LGBTQ stances, it's going to be political. It's going to and, be political. And, and the thing is, this is why, I, to an extent, and this is where I'm going to lose a lot of uh, my Muslim friends who have largely agreed, agreed with me up to this point, mm-hmm. is that, to be honest, I respect people who at the end of the day, go to those countries. And yes, they're making a lot of money from it as well, but still have the bollocks to say, do you know what? That's wrong. I respect Lewis Hamilton for having gone to Saudi Arabia, having raced in Qatar, having raced in Bahrain, and had the LGBTQ flag on his helmet. I respect yeah. it. So yeah, so if that's if that's their stance, religion-wise, on, uh, on LGBT, then I can't respect that stance, unfortunately. And I know that might cause some difficulty for people to hear but um that's that's my that's my kind of view on it and we can have a debate on it but we can't be as sort of um as arrogant as to believe that sort of it's it's one way or the, or, or get out basically no i i agree and before we go on to a breakup i would like to say yes we that that stance should be challenged um but it, it should also be challenged with a degree of respect to the culture and to the religion. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. And, 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 that's, and that's where I think there's a bit of nuance to this argument. But mm, of yeah, course. let's go to the break and we'll address the budget and Elon Musk's uh, funny takeover of Twitter. And welcome back to Politics on Draft. So we are now going to cover the mini budget which has now turned into a budget budget because it's no longer very mini so the chancellor jeremy hunt last week uh well we call him jeremy hunt behind the podcast hey, hey we say hey, something else hey, which we're not gonna say here <laughs> hey, we've, been, we've, been jeremy hunt. we've been good at being very anti-profanity this episode so <laughs> don't okay. don't don't Fine. forget the big one. <laughs> Listeners know what I'm referring to. But anyway, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt last week released his autumn statement, which was set to address the economic turmoil caused by the post-pandemic environment, the war in Ukraine, and the market's response to the shambolic mini budget of Truss and mm. Quasi Quateng. Mm. But they framed it as Putin's war on energy and Putin's whatever, you know? Mm. But anyway, I'm going to include, I'm going to outline the main points of the budget. And if you are sick and tired of hearing numbers, then skip forward for the next 15 seconds. So there has been a reduction of the highest rate of tax threshold from 150,000 to 125,140 pounds. Income tax, uh, national insurance and inheritance tax are going to stay the same. Government is going to reduce dividends and capital gains tax free allowance threshold. The global minimum corporation tax uh, is at 15%. 
the energy levy is has been increased by 10 points to 35% higher than expected. Uh, and also there's a 45% energy generator uh, levy, 8.8 billion pounds committed to the NHS, court schools to receive an addition 2.3 billion pounds, energy price guarantee raised to 3,000 pounds in April, and research and development public funding 20 billion pounds by 2024-2025. And the big one, in, for me at least, uh, is the national living wage uh, is going to be raised in line with inflation to £10.42. James, are they good enough? What do you think about them? What's the criticism then? What's your criticism? Mm, it's a really interesting one because there's an element of relativity here because everybody saw what the mini budget entailed and how shambolic it was. And so anything that wasn't that budget would would be kind of good. And it, it, the budget's come with actually very little contention, especially from the Labour side, because Labour have largely got what they want. They gotted commitments to the NHS. They got core school uh, additions. They, funny enough, because the, the big sort of thing for Liz Truss was that she was going to do the energy price guarantee of 2500 for three years, which is an insane amount of time and would technically allow um, the energy sector to charge the maximum amount as long as it was under that 2500 which is still ridiculously high. And Keir Starmer got a lot of backlash from uh, the brilliant uh, journalist Laura Koonsberg Um Again, sarcasm uh, for for saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, that doesn't give people much guarantee. And then Starmer came back and said, well, I don't think having really, really high energy prices for three years gives much people guarantee, which would what keeping the EPG going would do. So actually, this budget is is fairly what Labour wanted. National living wage raised in line with inflation to £10.42. I suppose the Labour response has been, well, look how much of a shit show this has been for the Conservatives, i.e., you know, they had to go through the whole mini budget. And, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, look, you've got Rachel Reeves just waiting in the wing to kind of take over and, and stuff. I don't think, I don't necessarily think Rachel Reeves would have done anything massively different in terms of this budget. You know, the the big point is the thresholds have gone down for the highest rate of tax. That's decent. Income tax for the other levels of income tax, NI inheritance, slow the same. Um, dividends and capital gain tax-free thresholds gone down. Again, that's good. More tax. Corporation tax, 15%. It's an argument for 19%, um, but I, I think it's better than what uh, Jeremy Hunt once pulled out of uh, pulled out of his mind, which was an 11% corporation tax. Uh, I guess the big one is the energy levy increasing by 10 points to 35%, um, and also 45% energy generator levy production, because we all know that energy uh, electricity is so high at the moment and that's a potential sort of wing for profit for the various different energy uh, energy firms i think these pol- policies are decent uh i yeah there's not really too much criticism apart from it didn't it shouldn't really have taken a mini budget to to sort of stand in the way of this budget but there, there you go what, what's your views on it as a as a as a labor member well I think, yes, I agree. They've done the things that they needed to do. 
Um, I don't think Rachel Reeves would have done anything too different other than the corporation tax going to 19%. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I, I said something um, a couple weeks ago now when Liz Truss was still prime minister. And, you know, our politics professor, Dan Gover, asked the class, what should Liz Truss do now to stay in power? And I said a list of things. And Dan Gover came back to me and said, so basically you want her to become a, a Labour prime minister. And I said, yeah. Uh, and that's basically what Rishi Sunak has done. What effect that's had on the polls? I think the polls are largely the same. Yep, they're 49 and 26, 49 going to Labour and 26% going to the Conservatives. So I think in terms of reputation, there's been an irreparable uh, amount of damage Uh so there's not a whole lot that you can do in such a short period of time, irrespective of how much public money you're spending in order in this uh, uh, mini budget slash big budget. So, yeah, that's my uh, that's my perspective. I think the damage done to the economy under Liz Truss is going to take a very, very long time to repair. I don't even think it's going to cover it's going to be covered completely under this budget. I think it's going to take us all the way to next year's autumn. Um yeah, that's my perspective. I think they've done the right things, but too late. Yeah, I mean, obviously what Liz Truss did was more sort of, I mean, obviously there was the, the bailout from, from the Bank of England, but uh, m the majority of the con sort of contentiousness related to her budget was what it did to the markets. Now, obviously markets are kind of a speculation of the long-term economy, i.e. businesses sort of saying, yeah, no, we don't think that's really good and we'll leave. And hence, that's where the prediction of sort of bad, sort of bad economy in the future uh, comes into play. But it, it isn't necessarily a reflection of the the current sort of current status. It's more kind of basically big bosses going, no, nah, no, I don't really like that, or I love that. Um, and I think all the big bosses were very happy when uh, when Jeremy Hunt came in because it, there was a certain sense of conservatism to to hunts of you know we're just going to kind of keep things very traditional we're not going to do anything too radical and there's probably pragmatic a, conservatism yeah there's probably a, a sense of there's a fiscal conservatism is the other uh, other way to describe it there is probably a good argument to say well could Rishi have done something more radical? Could he have maybe been a bit braver, seeing as the polls are so low, do something bold and see how the markets react? And if they react brilliantly, then maybe he puts his party at a better place. But I think the Conservatives are just so worried that they're potentially going down a road where there's no return that nobody wants to do anything that's bold. And as much as obviously I, I've, I've, Liz Truss's plan didn't work, you can't really discredit her bravery in terms of going, you know, I'm going to try something. Obviously, I don't agree with anything that she said, mm. but I'm just, I'm just adding a, a sort of uh, devil's advocacy spin to that. No, I see what you mean. Um, I think there was an element, yes, I agree, he could have gone much further. Um, he could have said national living wage above inflation, because that's what people sort of need at the moment. Um, he could have said corporation tax at 19%. Um, and he could have extended the energy price guarantee further. I don't think that's fiscally responsible, uh, but he could have done. 
I think there's an element of party management within this budget as well. Mm. Uh, naturally, I think he can't go that far to the centre or that far to the left of his party because it's going to alienate a massive element of his party, which, as we covered last week, is very very difficult to manage at the moment. Mm. And, and so I, I've been I've been I reading think it's a balance. I've been reading a lot about the Cameron years recently in terms of uh, a sort of what Cameron had to battle with at the beginning of his um at the beginning of his time as prime minister and one of the big things was trying to get his party on side which was uh, very difficult and one of the big issues that uh that Cameron had to face was trying to stop backbench rebellions uh because he was deemed to be too liberal and too kind of you know uh, under the desk with the Lib Dems during his coalition time. And so there is this sense of pandering to the ERG and whatever other research group uh, that exists within the, part, the party and the Sweller Bradmans and Kemi Badenoch, also because they probably believe that they're the future of the party as well. So he's got to do a lot of balancing in terms of his policy, some policy which he probably doesn't even want to enact so yes um i'm conscious of the fact that we're running out of time but mm. also uh i want to say i want to ask you one more question jeremy hunt a week before the budget said that there will be cuts now we haven't really outlined what the cuts are could you outline that for us yeah, so I think I I don't necessarily know if he said. I mean, the cuts I think were due to public spending, uh, public funding, and yeah. uh, I mixed spending and 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 funding at the same time. And uh, I so I think what it necessarily means is that the additions wouldn't aren't as high as they could be. So, for instance, two point three billion across all of the core schools in the UK. Isn't necessarily, you know, great if you consider how yeah if you consider how many core schools there are and the pressures on the public sector at the moment. R and D public funding for twenty billion again. You can argue that that could be uh, bigger, but I think probably what it it suggests what he's relating to is relative to Liz Truss's budget, which was lowering NI, lowering tax. his his is a bit of a kind of return to the status quo in ten, terms of sort of dealing with fiscal troubles, which simply in economic tool term in economic terms takes a lot of uh, tax and hard times. Unfortunately, I want to leave everyone with one little anecdote about the schools thing before we go on to Twitter and Elon Musk. Mm. Um, when I was on the doorstep a couple of weeks ago, uh, canvassing. Uh, I spoke to a member of the public who was very, very fearful that an impact, a combined impact on energy and underfunding of schools, that some comprehensive schools, specifically primary comprehensive schools, might not even be able to pay their energy bills. Mm. So that's a big deal. And this this particular individual was talking about school in Dorset and fearful that the same impact would come onto Bromley, which has a entirely conservative not entirely but a conservative majority council so there's a little bit of local slash national politics for you to digest so what's going on with twitter what's going on with twitter god it's it's been a very interesting time uh so twitter 
cast your mind back. You used to be owned and developed by some absolute uh, madman who had a lot of different conspiracies related to him. And it, it kind of contributed to this. I can't remember the name of him, but it contributed to this kind of sort of idea. If you that, Google Twitter madman now, then it's yeah, Elon it, Musk. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it will, it, will, it will probably sort of contributed to the general chaos that twitter seemed to be you know you didn't have the st- so-called stability of of meta formerly facebook and uh, google and youtube and stuff like that so elon musk earlier this year bought uh, the social media company uh, twitter and he came into the company vowing to make necessary changes in order to compete with the other I, social i'm gonna interrupt you platforms. i'm gonna interrupt you he didn't come in earlier this week, uh, this year, to buy Twitter. He wanted to buy Twitter earlier this year, but it was more of a bid to start a political discussion. He was mm. about to buy it, and then um, he was taken to court for mis- uh, misleading the shareholders, I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, in order to avoid the legal costs of that court case, he then just subsequently decided, "Fuck it, I'll buy Twitter." But no, he I'm was. Sorry, for- he was. He, yeah, no, I saw earlier. He was forced to buy. Twitter as a as a sense of compensation because the, the former the former owners and shareholders were were wanting to uh, sell off some of the assets relating to Twitter anyway because I think at one point he just wanted to be the majority shareholder but he kind of got told no complete takeover so he's come in and he's gone well we need to make some big changes and so some of his policies included the mass firing of employees I think fifty percent of uh, employees of the seven thousand five hundred employees Twitter had. Um, now, some employees came out in protest and actually just resigned themselves. Um, and in protest of the way they actually got resigned, apparently they, uh, where they got fired, apparently they got fired on email. Um, and yeah, but in, I think, you know, we can talk about the business side of things, but I almost think that's probably more of a discussion for the uh, podcast Diary of a CEO with um, Steve Bartlett. <laughs> but, um, but let's talk about the more public eye side of this, which is... Elon Musk's want to reinstate some quite polarizing figures. I've got a list of some of them. I'm going to read them out for you. So first we have Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Green. It's Marjorie something Green. I can't quite remember what her sort of double barreled name is. But uh, she was banned over anti-vax narratives and basically sharing sort of uh, some articles that are very sort of conspiracy driven and stuff like that. Um Someone called Babylon B, who's a right-wing satirist who made anti-trans jokes. Never heard of these people. Kathy Griffin, after she recently impersonated Elon Musk, making jokes over his uh, takeover. Jordan Peterson, big one. Now, I didn't know, actually, that the reason why he got suspended was because uh, he called um, Elliot Page, trans actor, uh, his former name, which was... Ellen Page, who was the actor who was in um, Inception, who was in um, uh, I think the Umbrella Academy on uh, on Netflix. But the the big one, the, the the sort of the cherry on top of all of this was he recently took to the polls to see if the people wanted Trump back. The people voted yes, and he reinstated. In the people was, in quotation marks. Yeah, the people. In what was probably the most controversial uh, decision given Trump's connection to the capital riots. And just t- t- to be quite sort of weird about this and, and, and just kind of express my views on um, sort of Elon Musk in, in himself. When he uh, 
when he decided to reinstate him, he used a little bit of Latin to uh, to talk about this. And Musk tweeted, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, which in Latin translates to the voice of the people is the voice of God. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very interesting. <sighs> uh, so my I'm just going back to the my main talking points as sort of what do we make of Elon Musk's sort of authoritarian takeover of Twitter? Although I don't really want to spend massive time on that. I want to sort of more talk about what do we reckon about the sort of reinstatement of these individuals and how it will affect the political scene in America? It's very interesting. You're right. I think I would I would classify as authoritarian as well. Um, over 75% of the workforce of Twitter has now left. Uh, and there's obviously a business perspective to this. and there, But there's naturally a political aspect to it in the sense that, you know, I think largely companies are nothing without their employees. And I don't know if Twitter would fo- will follow that same trend. Uh, but I think Twitter is going to fundamentally change, and in my opinion, for the worse. Now, discussing Twitter itself, we are only discussing a very small subsection of political society. People who go on Twitter are very, very politically engaged. Mm. Um, and there have been a lot of academics, politicians jumping onto different forms of social media and different forms of communication of their opinions uh, in order because they're fearful that um, Twitter is going to go under. And there were reports that Twitter was going under in some regions of yeah, the world. It out, it, there was a big outage, supposedly, reported was going to happen. In, in Europe and Asia, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's also the big thing of the verification, which you haven't mentioned, James. People can now buy verification ticks, and that's a big thing because there's a, there's a degree of authority attached to that blue tick next to your name you've done something that warrants or you are in a position of power where you have more information than other people that warrants you having that blue tick now anyone can have the blue tick i know uh, a, a conservative um student uh, at lse um who now has a blue tick next to her name um as if she holds any authority and when you, and you are able so if anyone wants to go uh, check it, you, if you go onto their account and click on the name, you can check if this person had the blue tick before Twitter Blue came oh, through or whether you can, um, whether they bought it. And this individual had bought it. So, mm. yeah, so people are just buying it, but buying that authority um, in a way. Um, and I don't think even though, there's an element of buying it. The authority of the blue tick has gone away in terms of Donald Trump and these very, very right wing, potentially dangerous political actors coming back onto social media. Yeah, it's terrifying. Mm. Um, Trump, when I last checked, still hadn't tweeted from his Twitter account. And you can go back mm. and you can see exactly why he was banned from Twitter. There, yeah. there is some rationality there. He caused a riot which put people and lives at stake. Absolutely. Injured um, people were shot and, as and a result with, of those tweets. And with regards to Elon Musk's sort of business plan with this, you know, I completely understand your point of view. Businesses are nothing without their people. And fundamentally, I agree with that as well. Elon Musk 
is a very clever man in terms of for some in some aspects a little bit unethically i think his manipulation of the bitcoin market was particularly uh worrying and unfortunately not explored in in too much depth um but with regards to uh tesla paypal um very successful but he's always had this kind of belief that with regards to his businesses they need to be very sort of exclusive or closed in terms of in terms of their personnel and it's worked for him um but i mean these people these people who work for twitter will be snatched up they'll be snatched up by the likes of google and the likes of meta and the likes of those competitors so and elon will be aware of that and obviously he's evaluated uh, the trade off so we'll just have to see kind of in the coming but that's more kind of as i said that's that's more for an an economical sort of uh, podcast to delve into with regards to the the reinstatements i think again i think it was almost quite clever because trump has said that he doesn't want to go back on uh, to twitter because he's got his um he's got his Oh, his own social media platform that I can't quite remember. Truth what Media. Truth Truth Media or something like that, yeah. Um, mm. And I do think that Elon Musk probably knew that. And I think what this probably was, was a way to get people talking about Twitter. We forgot to mention something about Trump. Trump has officially... Did we mention it? We didn't. No, no, we didn't, no. We mentioned it briefly last week. Uh, um, yeah. Trump has officially announced his presidential campaign. Um, and the fact that he doesn't want to go, go back onto Twitter is interesting. Maybe he realises... What a shit show that was for him as well. Um, I want to address the fact that you think Elon Musk is a very clever man. I think he's intelligent. I don't think he's a genius the way people make him out to be. Um, but he I think he behaves. Savvy. He's business. He is business savvy. Him. Yeah, I'll give him that. So he understands the way markets work. But he's not a genius that's thinking up of new ways to change the world. He stole Nikola Tesla's ideas when inventing the Tesla Motor Company. And yeah, he's business savvy. He knows how to get shit on the market. He knows how to sell stuff. Mm. Is he the smartest person in any room in the world? No. No, and I, and I think a lot of his, I mean, he's a bit of a, with, I say this with, in some element of moral high ground. I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't know where this has come from, but he is a bit of a weird bloke. You know, he the reason why he created his company, the Boring Company, is because he was sitting in traffic one day and thought, "Oh, I can't stand this." So he started digging tunnels. You know, it's it it doesn't really make sense. But people love him, and people think, "Wow, you know, what an incredible business guy." And I, I, to an extent, I I get that he was somewhat revolutionary, but I don't. Yeah, like he said, I don't think he's like per se the smartest man. Um, in any way but with regards to with regards to trump i i I don't think he's actually going to really succeed in any of those presidential bids Um, famous last words yeah that's what i was about to say famous last words i i I don't think he i don't think he will but um hold me to that kartik when we come back in january and would we have known the primaries uh no i don't think so the primary's gone for a very long time um We'll sort of know a couple of months before the 2024 election. Actually, what I've realised is the 2024 election, for the first time in a long time, if you can tell us, um, I know the answer, um, it has aligned with a general election. Oh, yes. 2024 is going to be a very, very interesting year. Very interesting, yeah. Do Do you know when there was the last time that happened? 
Do you know? I do know. When was it? 92. Oh, yeah. So anyway, edit that part out because it's no. probably boring as fuck. No, that's, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's interesting. Interesting to me. But um, look, we're coming up to an hour and uh, we've got we've got some we've got some editing to do. But um, I think. I just want to take the last moment of this podcast to say thank you all very much who have listened to us uh, for the last 15 episodes. What me and Kartik do is simply just sit down, have a beer or water when Kartik's being boring and just (laughs) chat shit about politics for an hour. And for some reason, quite a lot of you like it. So, you know, um, and that's absolutely lovely. And I've, I hope that we can do you justice by coming back in in January and just being bigger and better than ever and hopefully bring on some more guests and ask those questions that potentially you, the you know, youth, or if you're not youth, just people who are generally interesting, want to hear. No, I absolutely mirror those comments. Um, and I want to thank James for being a very, very enjoyable person to co-host a podcast with. We've become much closer as as friends over this period. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank everyone else for tuning in and listening. Thanks. We hope we made an impact on you. We hope you're now more interested in politics than you were 15 episodes ago. And we hope we can expand upon that in January. Absolutely. So with a very heavy heart... It is. <laughs> it's not that big. I know, it feels, I know it feels like that, but it feels like the end of the beginning, if you know what I mean. But anyway, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, thank you very much for listening. My name is James Tabor. And my name's Kartik Sawney. And you've been listening to the series finale of Politics on Draft Season 1. See you in January. See you in January. Bye bye.